Uh, we're in the middle of taking a fresh look at Jesus through the Gospel of John. John has a very unique way of telling the story of Jesus and recounts details about the life of Jesus and the events of Jesus' life that some of the other Gospel writers do not include. And so we, as we are continuing this, we're going to note that today we actually have another passage like that, an, an event that we don't have recorded in any of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but John seems to remember it. We also get a great look today at a device that John will use as he does remember the words of Jesus and something that Jesus would have done, and that is um, his way of using a single word to mean more than one thing, and we're going to see that happen a number of times in this passage. I actually thought about maybe today um, bringing a big John 3.16 sign, right, and just hold it up and then just say, hey, dismiss, right, that this is just field goal, and um, so there you go. But if you have your Bibles, let's open up to John chapter 3. We're not just going to hold up a sign. We're actually going to look at this. So John chapter 3, and we're going to see not only is this, this device of using these, these words for multiple meanings, but we're also going to see something of the beginning of a story of faith from someone who does not entirely know what to do with Jesus. I think hanging out with Jesus would be a really difficult thing to do. I, I, there's a lot of me that's like, I'd love to be, I'd love to have been present to be able to, like, what, what must he have been like? I think that that's something that we all are like, I wish I could have been present. But we also then realize, like, being around Jesus is kind of a tough thing to do. Like, he's always saying things that are challenging. He's like, he's like cutting deep to the center of our soul with the comments that he makes. And we find that, that true with this man, Nicodemus. So let's open to John 3, 1, and let's read this. And let's talk a little bit, make some observations from this passage, and see what it is that John is trying to say about Jesus and what that means for us today here at Taft Avenue. You guys with me? John has been awesome. Uh, John is an awesome, is a, such a great book. So let's read together. John 3, 1. Or I'll read out loud for us. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. All right. So let's start out by asking this question. Who is Nicodemus? So the name Nicodemus was common in the Greco-Roman world. It means, um, it actually means uh, victorious people or conqueror of people. Oftentimes, military leaders who won battles would get nicknamed Nicodemus. That would be the thing. Now, in the Jewish world, in the Palestinian Jewish world, that name is not that common. But we do see people named Nicodemus in the first century, um, particularly through a family that was called um, the Gurian family. I, it, anyway... I'm, I'm going geek mode, but I'm going to dial that back a little bit. I felt like I went full geek mode last week. And on the podcast, by the way, did anybody listen to the podcast? I went full, we have uh, two people. I, I do it for Dave, Dave and Michelle. That's all I do it for. But anyway, we went full geek mode on the podcast uh, last week as well. Um, anyway, but it's uncertain why John mentions this man by name. We don't actually get any, any re like most of the time, we, like, there's a blind man and we don't get his name. Sometimes we do get his name. But a lot of times it's just there's a man, there's a person, there's a woman. There, there's a lot of people in this gospel, we don't get their name, but we get this guy's name. We get his name, Nicodemus. And it says, there's a few things that it says about, a few things that we can know about him. It says that he was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jewish people. 
So Pharisees, we've talked about this a little bit before, but sometimes when we read the Bible, we've got to get back in the Wayback Machine. We've got to kind of figure out, like, what does it mean? We don't have Pharisees running around or Sadducees running around or zealots. Maybe we do have zealots running around. Um, but we don't have these kind of uh, sects of the Jewish people anymore. But so we go back and we kind of ask the question, what does it mean that he's a Pharisee? Well, Pharisees focused on, they focused on really the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the, the Torah. They focused on the Torah and they were based out of synagogues. This is different than the Sadducees. See, so Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees are focused on temple worship and priests and they're focused in the temple. They're based out of the temple. Pharisees are not based out of the temple. And this is one of the things that we need to understand about Pharisees, that the Sadducees, everybody kind of looked at them like side-eyed, like the Sadducees, you guys, like you're making a lot of money and you control the biggest thing, the biggest, the temple, and like, eh, you're kind of corrupt, and you got, you all like to get all, you know, be your, you got, you get your hat on, and you, you show up, and you're, 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 you're really there, right? Pharisees, Pharisees are in synagogues, and synagogues are not necessarily in Jerusalem. Synagogues are out in the rural areas, like Galilee. When Jesus starts his ministry, he starts to go around and preaching in synagogues. It's not temple-based. And actually, it was the Pharisees, among the common people, the religious representative that people liked the most were the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they, like, they weren't living high on the hog. They like, it says they fast twice a week, and they give a tenth of everything they have. Like, they don't, they're not like fat and happy. They're, like, they're lean and hungry, right? Twice a week, that's, that's a lot of fasting, right? So the, the Pharisees are actually respected by the common people. Now, it says here that he's a Pharisee, and I, I, this is another thing, as we go back, and last week we talked about this temple incident, where Jesus goes in, and he's like, I'm sick of this, and he turns over tables, and he makes this whip, and he, and, he gets all, and he drives out the animals. The Sadducees would have been like, hey, what are you doing? Like, this is the temple. But the Pharisees would have been like, ha, ah. <laughs> like, like, stick it to you, Sadducees. Like, there's a rivalry. And so there might have been this sense in which after this event in the temple, this Pharisee is like, this Jesus dude, like he's got a lot of nerve and he kind of stuck it to the Sadducees, like I'm kind of curious. So we hear that he is, he is a Pharisee. He's a, it says he's a ruler of the Jewish people. Now here's the thing about the name Nicodemus, okay? Like we said, in the Greco-Roman world, common. In the Palestinian Jewish world, not so common. As a matter of fact, some scholars have gone back and looked, and there are only four named Nicodemuses in the Palestinian Jewish world. They go back, Talmud, anyway, Mishnah, whatever, okay? All four of them are in one family, this Gurian family. And the Gurian family was a very wealthy, elite, politically elite family in Jerusalem. And so whether or not this Nicodemus was indeed part of that family, when when, Je when Jesus is saying, or when John is recording, Nicodemus comes to him, the idea is that, is that the original readers would have heard this name and the description, and they would have, given this, have been given the sense that this man was in the upper echelon of the Jewish leadership of the day in Jerusalem. He was probably a member of the Sanhedrin, the 70 men who kind of presided over the religious activities of the nation, some of them were Sadducees, some of them were Pharisees. This man was, he was a religious elite, 
He was a political elite. He was wealthy. He was the upper echelon of society. And if you hear that name, that's what you're probably thinking. And that's probably why he's named in this passage. Now, one of the biggest questions that we have, and you probably have this if you've, if you've read this before or you've heard of this preached on before, one of the questions you have is like, what are the motives of Nicodemus coming to Jesus? What are the motives of Nicodemus coming to Jesus? Was he curious about Jesus? Some scholars will argue that Nicodemus, Nicodemus is not curious. Nicodemus comes to challenge Jesus. And there's actually some good evidence within the passage that he's coming as a challenger. Later on, we might have the sense like, is, is Nicodemus a believer? Is he a, is he a secret believer? What, what's going on with Nicodemus? So let me, let me um, here's what I think, all right? And you can take this with, with whatever grain of salt you have. I'll, I'll provide a little evidence, okay? But I, Nicodemus has a few strikes against him here, okay? Here's the first one. Strike number one. You guys ready for this? Strike number one, Nicodemus is a man. You're like, look, I know that it's not, it's not exactly the year of the man, okay? Um, in our <laughs> Some of you are like, okay, all right. Hang with, these are all supposed to be funny, everybody, okay? All right, but here's the thing. Look back at 2.23. Look back in chapter 2, verse 23. And keep in mind that chapter divisions are not original. John did not put the chapter divisions in here. They came later. Look at 2.23. Right after he does the temple incident, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Now listen to this. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Okay, now that, he's saying like there are people who see the signs and they get curious because of the signs, and John's going to say signs are not, signs are kind of like Chinese food. You eat it and then you want more later. Like it's, it's, not, it's not satisfying. The signs are not what you believe in. You believe in Jesus. But here, this idea is that he, Jesus knows what's really in the heart of, hum, of humanity. But he uses the term man, anthropos. And he says, no one, uh, he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Like, dun, dun, dun. 3-1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. And you're like, that, it seems insignificant. That's not insignificant. John has just gone to great lengths to say, the heart of man is dark, and there's a man who is a Pharisee. And this is going to be the first, this is going to be the first dialogue that we see in the Gospel of John. There's actually going to be a string of them as we move into chapter, all the way to chapter 6, of Jesus having a, a, a dialogue with someone whose heart is darkened, whose eyes are blinded, and yet having that, that darkness, interacting with that darkness, the light is going to shine on the darkness. Okay? But, but Nicodemus is a man. He is one of those men that Jesus will not entrust himself to. So strike one, Nicodemus already has one strike against him. Okay, strike two is this. Strike two is this, he comes at night. He comes at night. Now, there's a lot of speculation. If, we, if you look in here, it says that he, um, sorry, it says in verse two, this man came to Jesus by night, and then he says to him, but he comes at night. There's a lot of speculation about why Nicodemus might come at night. The passage doesn't really say um, is, some people say that he goes at night because he wants to secretly, he's a, he's a highfalutin Pharisee and he doesn't want to be seen, so he comes at night. If you see the, the, uh, the show The Chosen, 
that's how they portray Nicodemus, that he comes in secret because he doesn't want to tip his hand, okay? Now, that's all speculation. We don't know exactly if that's true. Um, uh, he is coming that, uh, sometimes it's noted that rabbis study at night. So maybe he's going because he recognizes Jesus as a rabbi and he's going to study and to have a dialogue with him at, at night. Perhaps he's going at night so he can have uninterrupted dialogue with Jesus. We, we don't totally know why he's going at night. But what we do know is that for John, night is no bueno. Like, night is not good. Jesus will say in, in 9.4, Jesus says forebodingly, night is coming, and he's referring to his death. And in 11.10, Jesus says when he's about to raise Lazarus, he says, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And then maybe the most significant thing about this theme of light of night in John is when Judas is at the table at the Last Supper and John's like, hey, Jesus, who's going to betray you? He goes, whoever I dip this bread and give it to. That's... So after all that, he dips the bread, he gives it to Judas. Judas takes it and Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. And Judas takes off and then John says, and it was night. The night had come. And so the fact that Nicodemus comes at night, though a great historical bit of information, John is saying, Nicodemus is darkened. He is not coming in the light. He's coming at night. He's coming. He has a darkened heart. And he can't see clearly. So strike, so strike one, he's a man. Strike, some of you ladies out there are like, strike one. Let's not go off strike one too quickly, okay? Strike two, he comes at night. And then strike three for Nicodemus is he's impressed with signs. He's impressed with signs. If we look back, it says, when he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why? No one can do these signs that you're doing. Now, if you read in the Gospel of John, signs, signs are kind of this interesting thing. Like, they get people's attention, and they, they're meant not to be believed in, but to point as a sign to God, to Jesus particularly. And what we find is that there are going to be people in the gospel that will see a sign and then believe, but then they want more signs. And then they see a sign and they believe, and what John is going to say, and eventually Jesus will say something really hard, and they'll be like, we're out of here. Like, we came for the signs, we didn't come from the hard, for the hard teaching. And so, those who are interested in signs, it's, it's not a... It, belief based on signs, according to John, is not an adequate faith. It's a beginning faith. It's, a, it's, it's kind of an introduction, but it's not the real thing. It's not the meaty thing. And so Nicodemus is interested in signs. He's coming to Jesus because he's curious because of the signs. So he says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God. We know that you can do these things. Um, no one can do these things, uh, these signs, unless God is with him. So either he calls him rabbi, teacher, so either Nicodemus is being cordial or he's flattering Jesus. We oftentimes see when challengers come, they will flatter to start, and then they'll like really zing him. But we're going to find out Jesus never lets Nicodemus do a zinger, even if Nicodemus is coming as a challenger. Nicodemus at best, and Nicodemus also says, look at what he says, we know 
that you're a teacher from God. Like, we, you got a little man in your pocket? Like, I thought you came alone. Like, no, like, and Nicodemus feels like I can speak on behalf of all the Pharisees or like, we know what you are. We know what you are. And Jesus is like, you have no idea what I am. Nicodemus is at at best does not understand, but is curious. At worst, he's come to challenge Jesus. In any event, he is about to encounter Jesus. And the light is about to shine. John 3. He says, Jesus is like, all of this small talk, Jesus is like, look, I'm I'm going right I'm going right at the jugular. I'm going right at the heart of the matter. All this small talk aside. Now, the... We don't know, probably this is a longer conversation. It's more longer than the two minutes that we had read, and Lorraine did a great job of reading it. But probably this is an all-night conversation, but the way John records it is Jesus is going to go for the jugular. And he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus, whether Nicodemus is being cordial or trying to flatter Jesus, Jesus simply cuts to the heart of of the matter. Now, this is going to be one of the first of three plays on words that Jesus is going to use here. Then John uses this often where Jesus will say one word and it can mean two different things. Okay? That's going to happen three times. That's a lot of numbers. Sorry about that. Uh, one word means two things. He's going to do it three times. One, two, three. Okay? He's going to do it three times in this passage. It's not the first time he's done it in the, in the book. Like, for example, when Jesus says uh, in John in the prologue, Uh, The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. That word overcome can also mean understood. And both of those things are true. The darkness has not understood the light, and it has not overcome the light. One word, two meanings. You guys with me? All right, this is good. I feel like I'm in the classroom. This is fantastic. We got a whiteboard up here. Just imagine me writing on that. Okay, here we go. So he says, um, so what he says here is he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the word again, you might even have a footnote in your Bible that says this. The the word again is the word anothen in Greek, and it can mean again, born again, or it can mean from above, born from above. And what Jesus, both of those things are true. Both of those things are true. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again from above. That's what Jesus is saying. And so this idea, Jesus is probably saying something like, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born anew, or they are born, and it carries both of those ideas with it, right? Again and from above. In short, Jesus is saying to this member of the Sanhedrin, this Pharisee, this scholar, this leader, this teacher of Israel, that I have not come to give a how-to on how to develop better pharisaical habits, I've not come to simply do a remedial work on doing the Torah better. I've not just come to just give you better actions or better ideas or just or atomic habits. Like, I love the book, but that's, Jesus did not come just to say, hey, you just need to tweak this and tweak this and tweak this. He's like, no, it's time to be reborn. This isn't take it down to the studs. This is pour a whole new foundation. And Jesus has already ruined the water pots made for purification with messianic wine. 
He's already gone into the temple and said, you're going to destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it. And now he says to the teacher of Israel, to a teacher of Israel, you got to be reborn. You got to start, you got to start with a brand new birth. And that brand new birth has got to be from above. Now notice how Nicodemus' response to this. Because he's, he's darkened. He has come at the night and he is dark. And so instead of hearing again and from above, he doesn't even hear the from above part. He only hears the again part. So he says this. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus is not understanding. He's not hearing the entirety of what Jesus is saying. He only hears the again part. And I can, I can relate to Nicodemus here. Like the older I get, the harder it is to change. Does anybody else feel this? You, nobody else feels this. You guys are all totally malleable. And when Jesus says, hey, you should do this instead of this, you're like, Jesus, I'm so up for change. I love that. Nobody, right? Everybody's like, no, I'm like, I'm in my, I'm middle age. And I, maybe you, the young people, but maybe you guys, you guys have got your issues too. Okay, but like, you know, I, we're all, we're all kind of stuck in our ways. And, and Nicodemus is like, look, I've been around the block. How am I going to be born again? I'm respected. I'm admired. I've achieved. I have wealth. How can I, be, how can I go back in my mother's womb? So Jesus continues to engage and he says in 3.5, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. So just a, just a little aside, water and Spirit. There's a lot of ideas about what water means in this, in this case. Some people say you've got to be baptized and you know, baptized in water and the Holy Spirit. Um, or some people say this is about the water of cleansing and the water of spirit. Um, just, I follow one of my teachers that I had in seminary, Gary Tuck, and I think he has the best understanding of this. And that water is simply, water, being born of water is basically natural childbirth. Has anybody been present at a natural childbirth? Other than your own, everybody, okay? All right. One of the things that you'll note is that there's a lot, <laughs> sorry, uh, there's a lot of stuff that comes out. Particularly a lot of amniotic fluid, like a lot of water comes out. And I think in the ancient world, you had this idea that being birthed naturally was being born of water. And that's why when Jesus goes on to say, hey, look, look, you got to be born of water. you got to be born physically, but you also have to be born of the Spirit. And so he says, because that which is born of flesh is flesh. But there's a whole other way to be born which involves Spirit. And so we have this, this idea, born of flesh is flesh, born of spirit is spirit. So um, anyway, that's no extra charge for that, but I do think, um, and again, it's, there's all kinds of different ideas about what the being born of water is, but that's my particular take on it. And I think that 3.6 backs that up in that sense. So his expl explanation is that born of water, born of flesh, but born of the spirit is born of spirit. Now this is where we have our second double meaning, Okay with the word spirit. The first one was being born again or from above. One word, anothen, and it's either again or from above. The second is the word spirit or the word pneuma. 
Okay, he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Um, in 3.8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do know, not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, both of those words, wind and Spirit, are the same word. It's the word pneuma or pneuma. We have um, pneumatic tools where you plug in and it's tools that are powered by air, Right? You guys use pneumatic tools. It's powered by air. Pneuma is the idea. In, it's also the same idea in Hebrew, the word ruach. And it can mean three things. Either spirit, wind, or breath. You'll find it translated in all those ways in Scripture. And so here, what Jesus is saying is, hey, you've got to be born of pneuma, of, of spirit. And if you're born of spirit, it, spirit is interesting because it's like the wind. And the wind blows through here, like when the Santa Ana winds blow through here, anybody? Like that was one thing, I, you know, we, we live in Irvine, but here, like the Santa Ana winds are, have a special presence here in the city of Orange. Do they not? Like it's like 10 miles an hour more. We put up signs and like it's bending signs. I'm like, the, the, we got these, these signposts that are like hurricane force and it, like it's bending them over in our, in our front yard. So so this idea of, of wind, wind is interesting because it's mysterious. We don't know where it comes. Well, now we do know in the modern world in the sense that you have high-pressure systems and low-pressure systems, and wind tends to go from high to low. In the ancient world, the wind was a bit of a mystery. It came, and then it automatically comes through. We don't know where it's coming from, where it's going, why it's coming, what it's doing. And Jesus says, this is what it's like with the pneuma, with the spirit. The idea of spirit, wind, breath, it's this idea, even breath, you think about why are people alive? In the ancient world, you're alive if you're breathing. Why are you breathing? If someone stops breathing, can I get them to breathe again? No. Like, I don't have control over the breath. It's this idea of like unseen but powerful movement of God. You can see the effects. Can you, you can tell if someone's breathing, but you can't cause them to breathe. You can tell if the wind is blowing, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. This is the Spirit. Maybe a great, a great passage, a great passage um, that we looked at in, in Ezekiel 37, I think what Jesus is really talking about here is this idea of rebirth by the Spirit. I think he's leaning back on this passage in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 37, when Ezekiel is told to prophesy. To, he, he has this visionary experience, and it's this valley of dry bones. Hear, the sound, hear all the language of spirit and wind and breath. Ezekiel 37, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and there were very many on the surface of the valley, and they were very dry. They're, like, these are dead, dead bones. They're not, like, mostly dead. They're all dead. They're decomposed, not partially. They're dry bones. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over the bones. And they say, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath. To enter into you. He's been taken out by the Spirit, and now by breath are going to enter in. I will lay sinews on you. You'll cause flesh to come upon you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, ruach in you, and you shall live. You shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I, as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. 
Where's it coming from? It's coming from the wind. Thank you for the sound effects back there. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, flesh had come upon them, skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, wind, breath, spirit, all one passage, same word. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived. And they stood on their feet. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. I will bring you into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves. Does this sound familiar? I mean, this idea of breath, you've got to be born of the, of the Spirit, and God is going to open the graves. You're going to know that he's the Lord when he opens the graves. I will put my Spirit within you, and you shall live. Jesus is like, hey, Nicodemus, i got a passage for you. But I'm just going to say, you've got to be born of the Spirit. But if you're the teacher of Israel... This should ring a bell. What is Nicodemus' response? How can this be? Like Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, is still darkened. He can't see. How can these things... So he comes curious, challenging, but now he's like, he's exasperated and he knows his own blindness. And now Jesus is going to shoot straight and he's going to cut pretty deep. Look at 3.10. Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? It's almost like Jesus saying, Haven't you read Ezekiel 37? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak. Notice how when, when, uh, when um, Nicodemus came, he was like, We know who you are. We know. And Jesus is like, We speak. We speak of what we know. And we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? So this idea of being born from above, being born of the Spirit. And then Jesus says, hey, if you didn't get Ezekiel 37, I got another passage for you. It's Numbers 21. He says, 313. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, 3.14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, if you, if you haven't read your Old Testament, and this is actually, numbers, this passage that he's referring to, when Moses makes this bronze servant and lifts it up in the wilderness, it's only like five verses in the book of Numbers, it's like he, Jesus goes from Ezekiel 37 that every rabbi would know. Well, let's go for an even more obscure passage that I can compare myself to. And in, in, um, in, Moses, in Numbers 21, the nation of Israel is in the wilderness. And God, provide, God provides manna. God provides water. But the people are complaining. They're complaining. And so um, what shows up are these, um, these serpents. They're called they're, uh, fiery serpents. They're probably called fiery serpents because when they bite, it, like, it, it burns. 
Um, but they're, they're these fiery serpents that show up. And people are getting bit by them and they're dying because of them. You guys remember the story? I don't know. You, it, it is, it's a fairly obscure story in the Old Testament. And if, look, if Jesus had not told, used this story, there's a very good chance you wouldn't even know this passage existed. Numbers 21. And um, they're, they're biting people and people were dying. So this is what it says in Numbers 21.7. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We've spoken against the Lord, against you. Pray to the Lord that he might take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who's bitten, when he sees it, will live. So Moses makes a bronze serpent. Some people think it's a copper serpent. But he makes a serpent. He forges it. And then he puts it on this pole in the middle of the camp. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I think it's interesting. It's not like you look at the serpent, you don't get bit. It's like, no, if you get bit, you're going to get bit. Sorry about that, guys. But all you need to do is look at the serpent. That's all you've got to do. And that's actually um, today with like the Red Cross, that's the symbol of that. There's also, there's a little bit, anyway, Asclepius. Okay, that's geek, that's full geek mode, okay. All right, but all you had to do, all you had to do wherever you were, all you had to do is turn, do you guys remember the word turn? It's also the same word for what? Repent, the word repent is the word turn. Whatever direction you're going, if you repent, you turn and you face to God. And so all you had to do with this is wherever you were, you just needed to turn and look at the means of God's saving power. In this case, it was a bronze serpent. And Jesus says, hey, you remember that story about the bronze serpent? That's what it's going to be like. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this is our third double meaning. We've already had anothen, which is either born again or born from above. The word spirit, pneuma, can mean wind or spirit, happens here. This last word, hupsao, it's a verb. The Son of Man must be lifted up. What we're going to find out, when we think of lifted up, when we think about lifting something up, we think about glorifying it, praising it, like Jesus, be lifted up. We even sing songs like that, right? Like be lifted up, be lifted up. That's about glorification, it's about praise. But what we're also going to find out is that to be lifted up, in order to be lifted up, Jesus is going to have to be lifted up. That is, he's got to be crucified. He has to be put on a pole. To put it crassly, he must be put in a place where people can see him. And the the thing about this with John is that this double meaning, lifted up, glorified, is also when he's lifted up, humiliated. The moment of Jesus' greatest humiliation will also be the moment of his greatest glorification. John is going to say, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And it means two things. He must be praised, he must be glorified, but he must be crucified. The Son of Man must be lifted up.
And for John, Jesus' most significant moment of glorification is when he is on the cross. Most, and again, like Nicodemus, for those with darkened hearts, will see it only for its humiliation. But for those who are born of the Spirit, they will recognize it is God's saving power for the world on that cross. You cannot see it two more different ways. But John says, everyone who is born of the Spirit will recognize this is the moment of glorification. The thing they need to turn to and look at and consider and believe. Not the signs, not the signs, not the miracles. When Jesus is lifted up, And then whether these are Jesus' words or John's explanation, we have our famous verse. Right? John 3.16. For God loved the world in such a manner that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that it might be saved through him. I think this is interesting. Look, I look at the world and I'm like, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Anybody else feel that way? Right? Like you look around and you're like, it is not getting any better. Like the world is dark. And Jesus will say as much that the verdict, what is the verdict? The verdict is men, the light is coming into the world, but men love darkness more than light. I mean, you look at that, that is a, that is a telling verdict. And that, that verdict resonates with me, everybody. When I look at the world, I'm like, people love darkness. But when God looks at the world, he's like, oh my gosh, I love them. I love them so much. I love them so much. Like my response is, these people are going down. God's response is, I've got to send my son. I got to give. I've got to give so I can save. I've got to give so I can save. My response is, let these people, I mean, wherever, whatever. God's response is, I have to give. He loved the world so much. The darkened world, the world who didn't understand, the world that it says that Jesus, with all things were made by him, but the world did not know him. This is where God says, I've got to send my son. I've got to send my son. God could be condemning the world, but what is he doing? He's engaging in conversations with darkened people. I mean, Jesus could have dismissed Nicodemus. Boom! And he does. He goes right at him, right? And Jesus starts in darkness, but Jesus is like, no, let's have this conversation. A darkened world that Jesus is reaching out into, that he loves, that God loves the world. Gosh, what do we make of Nicodemus? What do we make of Nicodemus? The story begins with him coming at night, 
claiming to know, we know, Jesus, who you are, but at a loss at the end of this. How can these things be? And though this story, and don't miss this, though this story begins in the darkness, it ends with light. Look at 319. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. If you're doing a lot of bad things, you don't want them exposed. Okay, that's what Jesus is saying. 3.20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And this is significant for John because we ask the question, what is the deal with Nicodemus? Nicodemus comes at night, he begins in darkness, but at the end, the last word on Nicodemus is light. We see Nicodemus two more times in the Gospel of John. Two more times. And Nicodemus is on a journey of faith when we see him. In John 7, 45, you don't have to turn there. When the Jerusalem leaders are trying to arrest Jesus, Nicodemus stands up. 750 says this. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of, who was, who was one, uh, who was one of them, the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He actually stands up for Jesus. Timid, but he stands up for Jesus. And then they, they kind of slap him down. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see. No prophet arises from Galilee, which they're actually wrong about. Jonah comes from Galilee. Teachers of Israel. John loves irony. It's awesome. And then the last time we see Nicodemus, John 19. Jesus has just been killed on the cross. He's been lifted up. And it's Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who make provisions for his honorable burial. 1938, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So they came at night and took his body away. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes that weighed about 75 pounds. Nicodemus comes, I mean, with a 75-pound bag of spices after Jesus is dead. You want to know why? Because Nicodemus turned and saw the Son of Man lifted up. And he didn't just see the humiliation. He saw Jesus for what he was, God's saving power in a world of darkness. And Nicodemus says, well, let's get as much as we, we've got to honor this man. He might not have understood everything, but he understands. And we've got these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both wealthy, both honorable, both influential. And they're like, we've got to honor this man in some way. In chapter 3, Nicodemus is in darkness, but by chapter 19, Nicodemus has seen the Son of Man lifted up, and he's on board. Because why? His actions, what does he say? His actions have come out into the light, and they're not of himself. It's what God is doing in him. Nicodemus has turned and looked and believed, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life.